The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Sometimes you just need an empathetic ear to help you sort out the issues that are happening in your own life. Perhaps a forum of others just like you and guest experts who are helping them and can help you. This is that place. Welcome to Life Happens. Let's talk. Your host is Trina Wines. Fill your cup of coffee this morning and have a seat. What you're going to hear in the next hour is going to be amazing. Now, here is Trina Wines. Good morning. Welcome to another edition of Life Happens Less Talk. I am your host, Trina Wines, registered social worker, award winning author, speaker, and director of a child and family service agency. I have also been graced to create this show in order to offer support, understanding, compassion, and a space we can respectfully contemplate the purpose of hardships, adversities, and the unfair curveballs of life. You can find me at trinawines.ca and on Twitter at Moody Foods. Now, if you've listened before, you'll hear on my past shows, we discussed ways on how we, we can take control back of our situations when we have those life moments and also how our reactions play a major role in bouncing back from those life happen moments sometimes bouncing back even in a better place than we were before but there are some hardships that we perceive as failures and I think if you look at those failure, failures that we see as mistakes, you'll always find lessons in them. And I know myself, a lot of times when I look back in certain things, areas of my life where I may even feel a little still some guilt about, it really, when you draw the lessons from that and reflect on them, it lessens the guilt and actually you can see how it can make you a better person or a better version of yourself. So please be kind to yourself and compassionate and think about those things. But I want to talk about today on a situation, on a life happen situation, where there is often a point of no return. This is when our life is prematurely cut short by a terminal illness. Yes, it's true, we as humans are all terminal. And people say to me, Trina, we're all dying. However, what would you do if you were today handed the pink slip of life? That you were told that you only have four to six months to live. Yes, it's true. Life offers no guarantees and even tomorrow is not guaranteed. But are you appreciating or grateful for the life you have now? And are you living it to its fullest extent well, today there are many out here, out there, who have to grapple with the terminal diagnosis and face their own mortality. And they're doing everything they can today to prioritize, live well, and find peace in dying. 
So my guest today is Brian Walton. He is a pastor with the United Church of Canada, who has also worked as a spiritual care provider. Now, I want to state that I'm not promoting any sort of religious religion or religious beliefs. Everyone is entitled to live and practice whatever spiritual beliefs that is most suitable for them. As long as, of course, it doesn't involve harming or pressing or physically hurting anyone else. I am respectful and open to that, and I hope others are as well during this discussion, as religion will probably come up due to the nature of this topic. So, unlike sudden death or accidental death, we are going to talk about death and dying in the context of a longer, grueling crisis for patients, and of course their families, and how our guest today has witnessed the dying not only accept their circumstances, but have found peace and purpose and more meaning in the lives they lived. So with that, I would like to welcome Brian Walton. Good morning, Brian. Morning, Trina. Nice to be with you. Well, thank you for joining us. So before we go straight into our topic, I would like our listeners to learn a little bit about you. So can you tell us how many years you've been a minister and how you chose to do spiritual work as a profession. Like, what led to that? All right. Well, I'll tip my hand right at the beginning so people will have a sense of how old I really am. Um, I was ordained as a minister in the United Church 42 years ago, so uh, it's been a while. But uh, I need to take you back even before that ordination experience uh, to really explain how it is I ended up doing this work, uh, basically until the time I was born, because I was born to a mom who was 38 years old. She had uh, struggled conceiving, and uh, eventually her and my husband, were a- or her and her husband, rather, my father, were able to finally conceive, and that was me. And it turned out to be their only child. And mom was a very anxious, individual. Probably nowadays she might have been diagnosed with some kind of anxiety disorder. And I, uh, as I was growing up, picked up that anxiety from her. And by the time I was heading out to school, I was a pretty anxious kid. The world seemed to me to be a scary place. And uh, school was scary. Everything just seemed frightening. And Ironically, on my way to school, there was an Anglican churchyard. It seemed huge when I was six years old. Um, probably isn't really that big. I went back and looked at it now, but there was the rectory, the house where the clergy lived. There was a church hall where they held meetings, and there was the church building. I never went inside any of that. I just uh, walked through the churchyard each day. And somehow I got this sense that there was this loving power in my life that I came to call God, and that God was my companion, Um, that God accompanied me through my uh, day. And when I was feeling frightened, um, in some respects, God was there. There was nothing magical. didn't uh, necessarily make the fears go away, but there was just this sense of, of having this presence as a support. Now, interestingly, um, my parents weren't particularly religious, they, uh, my mother occasionally went to church. My father had a line that only hypocrites went to church, so he never did. So my exposure to God really was this experience, uh, kind of apart from any religious dogma, 
that came to me as a young kid walking through a churchyard. I think if I'd have been born in a different culture, I might have come to understand this God experience in a different way. If I'd have been born in India, perhaps I might have been a Hindu. Uh, in the Middle East, perhaps I might have been a Muslim. But of course, living in Canada, the dominant Christian story of the day was that of Christianity. And uh, so eventually, I came to understand this experience I'd had in the churchyard through the Christian tradition. Eventually, I met a friend who took me to church, and while I was in church, I kind of had an experience of community that felt warm and welcoming. So that kind of just expanded this uh, sense of support that I was already feeling from this mysterious kind of God power. Um, So that's kind of how I got into this work. I suppose the other piece that that is relevant, although it's really important. I I like people to understand that I had this sense of connection with what I'm calling the God power before these events happened. But uh, as a kid, probably between the ages of 9 and 16, I experienced uh, five deaths within my family circle. I grew up in a relatively small city, and most of my family members lived within a mile or two of me. So I experienced the death of uh, three grandparents, uh, of my father, and uh, of a cousin. Two of those folks, one of my grandfathers and my father, died on the kitchen floor, and I was there to witness their death. And tragically, uh, my cousin was murdered by her husband. And so although this isn't kind of what uh, took me into ministry or wanting to kind of be supportive to other people in the context of a faith tradition, uh, it certainly was helpful to me going through those tragic times to have a a spirituality that that was grounding for me. And how old were you when your father uh, passed away? I was 11. He had actually had uh, been diagnosed with a heart condition about four years earlier. I don't think at that age I was fully aware of how tenuous his life was. I mean, nowadays he would probably get a stent or maybe a bypass, but in those days those things weren't options, and so he was treated with medication. I was just kind of naively living my life as a little kid, and then all of a sudden he collapsed on the kitchen floor, kind of probably his third episode of having a heart problem, but this one was was fatal, so, um, and we had to move on, and even though my mom was this terribly anxious person, she, at 50 years of age, had to figure out how to support the family, so uh, she'd been a leave-it-to-beaver mom who had been in the house most of the time, and because of her anxiety, not very outgoing, she also had to kind of find the resources to, to be able to go out, apply for work, get a job, earn the money that was required to support the household, so... Although I recall her with many of these anxieties throughout her life, um, she, she also, you know, I was thinking of the intro to your, uh, uh, your program today, she also somehow found the resourcefulness to be able to pick up her life and go out to get a job and do what was needed in those uh, tough circumstances. Well, thank you for sharing that, Brian. And so before we go into your work as a spiritual care provider, we're going to go into commercial. And so listeners, hang on and we'll be right back. 
It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. What sets apart VoiceAmerica.tv from the other video content providers on the Internet? Choice and flexibility means that you can host your video content live or on demand on the main VoiceAmerica.tv channels through your own branded media player or your own private TV channel. We support multiple media formats, so all of your video content can be in one place. We offer a number of advertising and video packages. For more information, visit VoiceAmerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. Where can you listen to some of the world's top life coaches ready to dish out success tips and entrepreneurial guidance? The Voice America Empowerment Channel will do just that. Whether it's personal growth, building a better business, or inspirational life stories, make it a daily habit to tune into our programs. From weight loss and personal branding to law of attraction and increased happiness, you'll find it every day at VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com This is Life Happens. Let's talk. Would you like to join in to today's conversation? We invite you to call in to share your story, ask a question, or add a comment. Please call 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. If you'd rather send an email to Trina, her email address is trina at trinawines.ca. Now, back to Life Happens. Let's talk. Welcome back to Life Happens. Let's talk. My name is Trina Wines, and our guest today is Brian Walton. Brian Walton is a pastor with the United Church of Canada, and he had worked many years as a spiritual care provider, sitting by the bedsides of those with terminal diagnoses, and as well um, at the end of their life stage. So, Brian, before we went into commercial. You had spoke about your background, and you talked about how you had close family members, um, including your own father at 11 years old, uh, had uh, died. Now, experiencing that, what did you think of death then? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, uh, I have to keep going back to the influence that my mom had on me, and uh, you know, it is important to say, I think, that I know my mom loved me from the day I was born until the day she died. However, her anxieties, um, as I mentioned earlier, had kind of rippled over into my own life. And uh, so not only did I greet the schoolyard with a sense of fear and anxiety, I developed uh, a bit of hypochondria. She was uh, very much a hypochondriac, worried about dying, 
um, worried about getting cancer. I think uh, these worries maybe were always with her, but of course after my father's death, she knew that she was the sole parent to look after her son, not only to provide an income, but simply to be there for me. And uh, her anxieties kind of heightened this, this hypochondria, this worry about dying. So I was well-tutored in that, and uh, into my early adulthood, and probably even into my 30s, um, I also had this fear that if I got an ache or a pain or a dizzy spell or whatever, that somehow uh, there was a much more ominous cause behind it. And it's for anybody who's had that experience, you realize that although it seems silly to your friends and family, inside your own thinking, you just can't control it. it. It gets out of control and it's very anxious. So it's almost ironic that after about eight years working as a pastor in a variety of churches, I had the opportunity to uh, be employed as a chaplain uh, in a large general hospital. And so I started that work with my hypochondria in full swing and uh, for maybe the first six months or so, every patient that I met who had a new or unusual disease, I went home and thought that I was developing it. <laughs> However, fortunately, um, and it's kind of how life is sometimes, as you said in your introduction, sometimes when you face the most difficult circumstances, you can learn from them. And that was my experience in the hospital, working at the bedsides of people who actually had real diseases. Um, I learned that people generally face uh, illness and their own mortality with a sense of resolve. Uh, my tendency towards hypochondria tended me towards panicking about illness, and yet what I saw in hospitals was that generally after maybe an initial period of, of panic and anxiety, most people adjusted their lives and figured out how to lie, live in the midst of, of their illness even when that illness was terminal and was taking them towards death. It really was my experience, and those patients were great teachers for me, that uh, dying is part of living. And once we get over the initial shock, um, most people figure out how to incorporate uh, living through their dying to the end. Probably you and most of your listeners will have heard of Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, the uh, kind of grandmother of the palliative care movement, a doctor who in the early 60s um, took it upon herself to actually ask people about what the dying experience was like. And you might know that she suggested there was a variety of stages that people went through. Uh, initially, denial, mm, this can't be. Bargaining, well, maybe if I started going to the gym, that will go away. Uh, eventually, sadness and anger over the the reality of the illness and the impending sense of loss. And then her final stage, which she called acceptance. Now, she didn't want people to know uh, as time went on. They thought these stages just all went in succession, but in fact they kind of come and go. But this, this stage of acceptance was what I actually did witness in my interactions with patients, that people um, are able to incorporate uh, dying into the living process. Perhaps it's not uh, surprising that one of uh, Kubler-Ross's final books was entitled To Live Until We Say Goodbye. 
and uh, I think really that was what patience taught me. It's uh, what she ended up advocating towards the end of her life, and it's the philosophy that I take forward now, that, that the task of the moment is to live, and we are all human and finite, and when the end does come, we have to figure out how to live well into the ending. Maybe I'll just share a bit of my personal philosophy here, and that is that uh, I think of life as being made up of four seasons, spring, summer, winter, and fall, and each of them in about uh, 20 years' duration. And if you happen to be as lucky as me and make it to the winter season, then hopefully you've had so many experiences along the way, you can bring those life experiences to uh, the reality of dying. Uh, I think it's the Buddhists who encourage us to stay awake in our life. And to me, that's maybe one of the most important things. We, we can coast through life, maybe even skirt around the edges of illness and death and, and not really allow ourselves to learn things. But if we're open to what life can teach, it can help us and prepare us, I think, uh, for facing the final season. For me, I'm 63 years old now, so I'm just into the winter season, what is likely the last season. And I think uh, the life task in this season is for me to learn how to end well. Because in this winter season, lots of things end. I expect my paid work life will end in the next three or four years. Already I'm experiencing a little bit of the ending of my physical strength. Uh, bedtime comes earlier than it used to. And I see all around me and anticipate it will happen in my own life that friendships and uh, even family relationships will end as people age and die. Um, so it's not always an easy process, but I think if we're not so surprised by it, um, we can welcome death as a natural part of life. I met a woman uh, in the hospital who was on dialysis, having uh, the blood taken out of her body every uh, other day and uh, cleansed through the dialysis machine. Her kidneys had quit functioning. She was enduring this process for, oh, I think about five years. When the disease process ramped up a little bit and the doctor told her that she would require an amputation of a limb, and she pondered that for a day or so, and then, um, because she was in the winter time of her life, said, you know, it's enough. I, uh, the dialysis has been a great asset in helping me to live, but uh, I just don't want to carry on uh, imagining that I might have a series of amputations over time. And so she intentionally chose to stop dialysis, knowing that she would die within you know, a week at the latest, and uh, she organized her family, uh, that they would each come in for about a half an hour, an hour. They'd have a conversation. She'd talk to them about how important they'd been in her life. Um, she'd offer them a kind of blessing for their relationship, and they'd say goodbye. And then the next family member would come in. Uh, by the time she went into a coma, she had spent some quality time with each family member. She had been in charge of her ending and uh, seemed to enter into that uh, space with a sense of peace. Um, so I recognize that when death comes in the winter of one's life, 
it, uh, it's a different experience than when it comes earlier. In fact, research suggests that uh, those left behind, that, that grieving is actually shorter for people who have lost folks over the age of 60, who have lost aging parents, for example, than it is for, uh, you know, for other kinds of loss. And I think it's because we all know that at a certain point in life, life does come to an end. Obviously, the dilemma is when um, life ends earlier in spring or summer or even fall, um, that seems more tragic for sure and clearly uh, is more shocking. And yet, I've also seen patients who at a young age, after they get over the shock and uh, the challenge of trying to bring into the awareness that, that death is coming at this young age, do adapt. I think of a young man, 30 years of age, who I met when I was 30 years of age. So we were pretty similar. He hadn't had much experience with the life of the church, but as a chaplain, he had asked to see someone, and I went to see him. And here he was, young man, first uh, child still uh, within his wife's womb, and he had got this diagnosis of a terminal cancer. I mean, clearly there was a sense of shock, and he didn't really know what to do. But as the days went on, he too kind of took charge of his living until he died. He wanted more connection with the faith community. He organized his extended family to be able to support his wife after the baby was born. Fortunately, the baby was born before he died, and that was a great gift to him. But at the ending of his life, while there was regret, there wasn't despair. There was a sense that he had incorporated the reality of dying into his life and, uh, and was able to die with some sense of peace, even though it was clearly out of season. Well, thank you for that, Brian. So before we go into commercial break here, uh, what I would like to talk about, uh, well, after we, sorry, after we come back from commercial, is uh, sort of want to talk a bit about the afterlife. So if anybody in you, you know, that you have uh, worked with is either afraid of the afterlife or what they believe is the afterlife or, you know, and we'll probably touch on religion a bit as well. And uh, if that helps people um, lessen their fears or um, does it ebb and flow? So, so Brian, hang on and uh, we'll come back and listeners, hang on and we'll get back with Brian Walton. us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? 
Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus, topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. Live up to your full potential. You've heard that for years, but now there's a channel to help you get there. Introducing the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Get motivated, hear about success stories, and positive encouragement. The Voice America Empowerment Channel is the home of the world's top life coaches, entrepreneurs, and success experts. Listen to the Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. Build a better business. Achieve that goal. Make good on that resolution. The Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. This is Life Happens. Let's talk. Would you like to join into today's conversation? We invite you to call in to share your story, ask a question, or add a comment. Please call 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. If you'd rather send an email to Trina, her email address is trina at trinawines.ca. Now, back to Life Happens. Let's talk. Welcome back to Life Happens. Let's talk. My name is Trina Wines, and our guest today is Brian Walton. Brian Walton is a pastor with the United Church of Canada, and he also worked as a spiritual care provider in general hospitals with the terminal ill and those that are entering their end of life stage. So, Brian, when we um, before when we went on commercial, I did want I did state that I wanted to talk about how. Uh, I guess the the people that you have worked with, the patients, is when they were, you know, of course, you know, accepting the fact that their life is ending. Was there ever any after talk or any questions or um, any reflections on the afterlife? Like, I understand there's no absolute truth, although, you know, some religions state that, you know, this happens and this happens, this, this happens. But I guess what it is, is that does that create more fear or does it help um, them make peace? Uh, does religion ha- play a role I- in any way? Can you please speak on that if you could? Mm-hmm. All right. Well, that's an interesting question. and kind of heard a, lot, a lot rolled into sure. that. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll start maybe more broadly and then try and speak more specifically uh, about the afterlife. Um, the question might be asked, is there a difference uh, for a dying person between those who possess a religious faith and those who do not? And I've had experiences sitting with folks who certainly uh, profess a religious faith and those who don't. And from my own personal experience, I would say generally there isn't a lot of difference. What, is, what makes the difference is the intentionality with which one lives. Um, in the geriatric unit, um, there used to be a, a phrase that said, uh, 
people age according to how they have lived. In other words, if you lived an active life, uh, you're probably going to be active in aging and so on. And I, I think the same applies to dying. Um, if you've lived with intentionality in your life, if you've lived with a sense of optimism about life, if you've found courage to be able to face life's challenges, if you've been surrounded by a caring community, and that's really important, uh, then generally you bring those resources to the experience of dying. And uh, in the best of all worlds, you incorporate the reality of dying into your life. Um, you bring courage to the moments, both to face the challenges that dying presents and the courage to be able to support the family members and friends. And in turn, you're supported by them. Unfortunately, for those who have lived with a sense of disillusionment and despair, often the dying process is more difficult because they haven't nurtured uh, the more positive resources in their life for whatever reason. Sometimes it's not individual will, but circumstances. But people who have struggled in their life sometimes also find that death is, is a bit of a struggle. So in some respects, I think that a person's ability to engage the dying process with, with a sense of hope grows out of their whole life experience. And if there's any lesson to be taken away from that, perhaps it's that we need to be very intentional about trying to uh, nurture our own spiritual and emotional lives uh, while we're living. And uh, that's a resource to all of life. That being said, there's a rather well-known physician uh, who works at Duke University in the United States, uh, Harold Koenig, Dr. Harold Koenig, and he's done probably over a hundred research studies to try and determine the impact of people's faith on their well-being. And he's, throughout this variety of research studies, he's uh, discovered a very strong correlation between people who actively practice their faith and positive physical and mental well-being. So he's not saying what's happening. He's not saying that it's an automatic A plus B equals C experience. But he's saying that in his research, he's discovered that people who intentionally and actively practice their faith tradition, whatever it is, um, have more resources, are more physically and mentally well, and have more resources in a time of crisis. So perhaps if the question is, is faith helpful to you uh, when diagnosed with a terminal illness, I think the answer is yes, uh, that faith can be a great resource to people. In fact, I've seen people of deep faith who exercise a trust in a loving God, who engage in prayer and religious ritual, and who find all of those things very meaningful and sustaining uh, in difficult times. Um, I've also read some nursing literature, which uh, offered up an interesting uh, metaphor or paradigm, uh, as if you were looking through a window with four panes in it, and uh, this article suggested that people have both spirituality and religion and that in one pane, 
of the window. You might look through the window and see uh, high spirituality and high religion, and another high spirituality and low religion, and another uh, high religion and low spirituality, and then another low spirituality and low religion. So hope I didn't lose you in all of that. Mm-hmm. The point that, that seemed important to me in thinking about that is that sometimes people have high religion, that is, they practice the rituals without letting those rituals have much impact on their life, their, their spirituality, if you will. So sometimes those individuals who haven't maybe really wrestled with their spirituality and or their religion, rather, and integrated it, find that either they're disappointed in their religion, such as, why has God abandoned me in this time? Or in the worst case scenario, they're fearful because they've maybe incorporated uh, the worst of religious dogma and are living with fear that somehow they're going to be punished in the afterlife. Um, For people who have high religion and high spirituality, uh, their religious practices have been integrated. They they have thought through the tougher questions. Uh, I might just say that when I started theological school three or four decades ago, I remember uh, one of the professors early on in my first year um, saying, the only thing you'll know for sure when you graduate from theological school is that you know nothing for sure. In some ways, that wasn't very comforting, but it really turned out to be the reality that uh, faith is just that. It's, it's a leap of faith. We, we don't know things for certain. Um, we choose to believe them and let them inform our life. So indeed, yes, there are people who believe in an afterlife, believe that there will be a welcome by some loving creator, by God. Um, In my own Christian tradition, there are many who believe in uh, the resurrection, that somehow there will be a life after this life that that they will uh, enter and be embraced in. And it does give them a sense of hope in in difficult times. Myself... um, I'm a rather strange uh, clergy in that uh, my life is often marked by doubt, maybe a little bit like Mother Teresa. Um, I can't let go of the faith, and yet I have lots of questions. And I remember one time meeting a parishioner who I dearly loved, and he'd been diagnosed with the cancer. He'd always appreciated my ability to doubt and not to be dogmatic, but here he was on his deathbed, and he looked at me and he said, uh, what's going to happen after death? And I looked at him, and I dearly wanted to tell him for sure uh, that he would be in some loving place. All I could say to him was, uh, I don't know. That's my most honest answer. But I have hope. I have hope that there is some kind of existence beyond this life. I have hope that the God that I experienced in that churchyard and have known throughout my life will continue to love me after my death. So I don't think anyone should diminish the reality of hope. Uh, I don't think hope is just being naive. Hope is, is just that. It's, it's opening oneself to the possibility that there may be a reality that we haven't fully understood or experienced yet. Uh, certainty, that's much more difficult for me to have. Well, thank you for your honesty. Uh, that uh, yeah really is 
is enlightening and and obviously uh, working in your profession, but also the experience you've had uh, working as spiritual care provider, uh, I, I could see how it has um, certainly opened you up even further. So how has that evolved in in regards to your, I guess, religious beliefs or, or just even in your spiritual self? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, my most recent work uh, for the past 14 years was as a spiritual care educator and um, teaching students uh, of a variety of faith traditions. Uh, how to care for patients in the hospital, both those that possessed a religious belief and those that did not. And, uh, you know, I, I might say more about that uh, in a few moments. Uh, I think the one thing that I want to acknowledge is that um, patients are the teachers. <laughs> and if we're able to listen well to the patients, um, they teach us both about what they need, but also teach us, uh, give us wisdom for our own life. Um, I, I was saying earlier about uh, the seasons of life and trying to address uh, them and be open to the learning that is there. I read an article recently, though, that uh, it probably speaks to one of the most challenging arenas, and the article is entitled The New Grief. And uh, the article suggested that as medicine gets better and we live longer, we're more and more apt to be faced with the kinds of medical conditions that create cognitive limitations. Of course, what comes first to mind is something like Alzheimer's. The article suggests that this is the new grief, where in the past, uh, active grief after the loss of someone might last for a couple of years, not that we ever forget, but but maybe the pain subsides. This new grief is living alongside someone who's constantly changing, and at a certain point, uh, you know, if it's your partner, you're, you're living with someone who has the same body, but can't interact with you in the same way. And uh, that is a difficult grief. There is just no doubt about that. And... Uh, I would really encourage people who have uh, friends or family members in those circumstances to uh, to offer whatever support they can because there's a great emotional strain in caring for someone whose very personhood is changing. And uh, so there's both the loss and the energy required to care for that person. And so... Um, uh, I'm no a little off track from your question there, but I just I noticed this in my notes, and I thought it was really important to say that there is this new grief around, and people really do need a lot of support in those circumstances. No, absolutely, that makes sense. Like you said, with the advancement of medicine, we are living longer, and uh, you know our bodies may live longer but also to sometimes our mental capacity or our brain functioning may not be able to keep up and and so that's of course what we're certainly seeing in the world today in regards to alzheimer's or dementia now when we come back i do want you to share the lessons that you you have learned but also too i understand that you have been in a position where you were educating students you're also a teacher so i want to talk about that before we wrap up the show so we're going to go to commercial and listeners uh, please hang on for the last segment of the show and um, 
yeah, we're going to hear from Brian more. Find out what makes the most successful people tick. Keep listening to the Voice America Empowerment Channel. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings of the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our wall. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Become a member of VoiceAmerica.com. It's easy and best of all, it's free. Start out by going to our homepage or any of our channels and click register at the top. Once you've created an account and signed in, you can create your own custom library, opt into our newsletter, search by show, host, guest, or topic of interest, or browse millions of hours of content across all of our Voice America radio channels. Membership gets you more. Visit VoiceAmerica.com today to get started and tailor the listening experience to your taste. Where can you listen to some of the world's top life coaches ready to share success tips and entrepreneurial guidance? The Voice America Empowerment Channel will do just that. Hear about personal growth, building a better business, inspirational life stories, and personal branding. You'll find it every day at VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. Friend us on Facebook to keep up with what's empowering the world. Voice America Empowerment. This is Life Happens. Let's talk. Would you like to join into today's conversation? We invite you to call in to share your story, ask a question, or add a comment. Please call 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. If you'd rather send an email to Trina, her email address is trina at trinawines.ca. Now, back to Life Happens, Let's Talk. Welcome back to Life Happens, Let's Talk. My name is Trina Wines, and I just want to pass on that these shows also are in podcasts. So if you know somebody who may benefit from listening to any of these topics, uh, even, you know, especially today's topic, please share with them. And uh, the link you can find on the Voice America Network website under Life Happens Let's Talk. And uh, you can listen to it anytime and, and share it and share it on your social media yeah, please, yes, because I feel that these topics are really supportive to other people that may be going through uh, these types of situations. So our guest today is Brian Walton. He's a pastor with the United Church of Canada, worked as a spiritual care provider in the hospitals with uh, terminal patients. And before we leave, because this is the last part of our show, Brian, if you could tell us... Um, what you had passed on to your students, because I know that you were in the position of teaching those that are going to become future spiritual care providers. So what do you think that was most important in passing on to them, working with um, these patients? And also to, obviously, if you're passing this on, it would, you would see that, is it being important yourself? Yes. 
Well, thanks for that question. Um, Perhaps I'll just say two things. One is that in uh, general hospitals where, at least here in Saskatoon, 50% of the patients who admitted to hospital don't identify a particular religious tradition, we, we approach our work with the belief that spirituality is uh, different than religion, that religion in some respects is a subset of spirituality. We define spirituality in three ways, that... Uh, and believe that everyone has a spirituality when defined as a sense of meaning or purpose that informs their life, what uh, makes life meaningful to that individual, um, defined as relationship with the community, who are the significant others in their life, what's the nature of those relationships, how do they find support, and uh, finally, how do individuals uh, experience and express a sense of awe about life, uh, identify hope in their life, uh, express courage in their life. And so when we go into a patient's room to offer care to them, uh, the goal is to listen to or listen for how they respond or engage those kinds of spiritual issues in their life. What is their sense of meaning or purpose? Who is their supportive community? What inspires them and gives them a sense of hope and courage? Now, clearly, for some people, those questions are readily answered through a religious tradition. But for others, um, those questions are answered through stories about their work life, uh, about their family, perhaps about uh, their cottage or some trip they've been on, um, some inspiring books they've read. So really, when we go in to provide care to people, we're wanting them to define what spirituality is for them. And our task is to listen, which is probably the the second uh, thing that I tried to nurture most in students. First was this sense that spirituality is a broad-ranging thing that may or may not include religion. But then secondly is that our task isn't to go in and tell people anything, but rather to go in and listen. In a busy hospital environment, uh, the reality is that there aren't many hospital staff that actually have time to sit and talk to patients. They administer the blood pressures and the medicines and offer up the diagnosis and answer medical questions. There's not many people who are just willing or able to spend the time sitting and listening, but spiritual care providers can do that. And so uh, the task was to listen well. We spent a lot of the educational hours practicing how to listen well, using good listening skills, all the information that psychology gives us about listening well. And as we listen, people get to story their lives, tell the story of their lives. And it just seems as if there's something healing as people tell the stories of their lives. I had an opportunity for a number of years to work as the mentor to a uh, support group for people with amyotropic lateral sclerosis, ALS. As uh, you might know, if you know anything about that disease, it tends to be a very devastating disease where people lose all muscle ability and eventually can't talk and can't swallow. Death normally comes within a couple of years. As I sat with the support group and heard both family members and patients speak about their experience, the thing that was one of the most troubling and hurtful experiences for them was that individuals who they had counted as friends, 
who they had connected often with in their life, they often felt abandoned them in the time of illness. Now, I don't personally believe that we abandon someone because we've suddenly become callous and uncaring. I think a lot of people uh, really get frightened in the face of uh, a difficult illness like that, don't know what to say to their friend, are afraid they're going to say the wrong thing, and so they just stop communicating. Maybe send a, a card once a week or something, but uh, don't maintain the friendship in the way that they had. And I really believe that for many people, uh, this is because they don't know what to do. They don't know what to say. They're afraid they're going to say the wrong thing. And so I would offer up to the listeners uh, the same advice that I gave to my students, and that is you don't have to say anything. It's not your job to make them feel better. In fact, it's kind of foolish to think that we can make someone in the midst of a difficult illness feel better. What we can do is listen to them. Listen to what it's like to be in the midst of this illness. Listen to what has given them joy in life. Listen to what they want to value and celebrate as they anticipate their own ending. Listen to their worries and their appreciations. Simply listen. Uh, Sounds all too simple, I know, but it is the one thing that I would want to emphasize and did emphasize with my students that the real task of caregiving the real opportunity to let someone express their spirituality or even their religion comes in with our ability to listen, to listen well and nurture their stories. Perhaps the only other thing I'd say, because Hans, we're getting close to the end here, is that I also learned from the students, and most recently I learned from students, uh, I had a number of students who came from Africa, and it was surprising to me to listen to them and how they helped me see uh, some of the ironies of our culture. They they said the patients looked terribly lonely and isolated in the hospital, and I asked them what they meant by that, and they said, well, in their African countries, like patients would never be left alone, even for 10 minutes in the hospital. There'd always be at least one, if not 10, family members with them. And, of course, they'd be bringing the food that the patient eats and taking their clothes and bed clothes home to wash because it was just the nature of health care in these countries. And their observation was that patients in our hospitals looked so alone. And perhaps it's a reflection of this uh, high value we place on autonomy and individualism is that sometimes it results in leaving people abandoned. So this um, business of being present and being willing to listen, I think, is uh, absolutely important. Well, thank you for joining us, Brian, on Life Happens. Let's talk. Um, it was That was an amazing show, and I, I can listen to you for hours and hours. However, we are coming to an end here, and I am just hearing that in every crisis, even one in, in this type creates opportunities, and uh, really death does make life more precious. So thank you, Brian, and um, thank you for, for being here. Well, thanks for the opportunity, and uh, wish you well as the programs progress. Thank you. Okay, listeners, so p- please join us next week. We have um, another great topic for next week, and uh, may you have a wonderful day and rest of the week, and please do something today that will make a difference for your tomorrow.
Take care. Thank you for joining us this week for Life Happens, Let's Talk. Please join Trina Wines again next Monday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We've made this week just a bit easier. How about coming back next week? We'll see you right here. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.